Welcome to the Be Brave podcast, where ordinary, badass, brave women speak their stories of courage and strength. We hope that by hearing the struggles and successes of women just like you, it will help you be brave. Please note that the Be Brave podcast does cover adult topics that include overcoming adversity in areas of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, and other difficult experiences. Today, we have Vicki with us, who will be talking about addiction and other experiences that led her life to go from surviving to thriving. A uh, little background about Vicki. She is a warm, kind, and loving person with a deep sense of humor and a dash of badass. After being in prison and surviving many other struggles in life, she found a way up and out. She is now a spiritual teacher who uses her life experience along with her training in yoga Reiki, and holistic health to help her clients achieve the greatest possible physical, mental, and spiritual health. Vicki's spiritual journey began when she found yoga, or as she likes to say, yoga found her. She came to the practice 19 years ago while pregnant with her son, Ryan, looking for a lighter workout. At the time, she was a gym rat, obsessed with the way her body looked rather than how it felt. And yoga brought amazement in the way her body could move and the way it made her feel, not just physically, but spiritually, she felt more complete. Vicky says, yoga has broken me down to bare bones and helped build me back up again from the inside out. Vicky is a fierce believer in people living their truth. She looks to empower her clients to open their hearts and be vulnerable, letting the world see them for who they really are and live a life full of meaning and purpose whatever that looks like to each of them. Vicki lives in Connecticut and recently celebrated 11 years of marriage to her husband, Don, and also 28 years of sobriety. Vicki, and I'm getting choked up. All right, give me a second. <laughs> I love you. Vicki, thank you so much for joining us. She is a dear friend of mine, and I'm so happy to be here. I want to read you a quote, Vicki, that we've read to others that we've interviewed. One day you would tell your story of how you've overcome what you're going through now, and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. Thank you, Vicki, for coming on and sharing your story with Karen, I, and our listeners. We're super excited to learn more about you and to help empower others through your story. So tell us where you'd like to begin and share you with us, please. <laughs> Hi, Kara and Patty. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your Be Brave podcast. I love the name of your podcast and how fitting was the quote that I didn't know when we were talking about surviving to thriving being one of the things that was a motto in my life. And uh, I think it's a, it's an, a, an apropos quote for uh, the work that you're doing. Uh, I never start in the beginning. I'm a Pisces. <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody knows what that means, it's uh, really that I'm a little, I'm not linear <laughs> in any way. So it's always like start at the beginning seems like a very strange place. And tonight is the very auspicious 
full moon, the harvest moon, which is in Pisces, oh, wow. which means I can get my life back. <laughs> I'm not a big, I don't follow astrology a ton, but I know enough about it just to use the energies of astrology to help support my spiritual life. And the last two full moons, I believe were in Virgo and it was a little bit much for me. Anyway, so I'm just happy to be free of all of that and into my cycle of um, non-linear living (laughs) and more intuitive living. Anyway, and I love this time of year. It's the fall equinox. So I've been uh, preparing the last couple of days to utilize this energy of the equinox and the full moon and the harvest moon to help me grow spiritually. You think after 28 years of sobriety and a good 20 years of trying to live a deeply spiritual life, you get to this graduate program, but you don't. At least I don't. Maybe other people do, but I don't. And as a yoga and meditation teacher, I always teach people to start where they are. Like that's where the the beginning is. So for me, I'm going to get right into how, you know, why I got sober, um, because I think it's a good place to start. It's the actually the anniversary of I just celebrated my sobriety date, which was uh, September 6th. And I'm going to tell you how I got, why I got sober and how I ended up in prison first. I was 25 years old. My mother died when I was 22. And uh, my life uh, growing up was a very unsafe environment. It was, there was a lot of abuse, physical, uh, emotional, sexual. I was not protected by the people that were supposed to be protecting me. And I started drinking at a very early age. I was in a household where there we we were literally, you know, I don't say we were raised by wolves. We just raised each other. Like there was no real supervision in our household. And I had to grow up really fast and do the chores and take care of the house and that kind of stuff. And uh, anyway, so I was a full-blown alcoholic by the time I was, you know, I usually say by the time I was 14 or 15, I don't have past a formal ninth grade education. Uh, I used to carry that as a badge of shame. And now I kind of recognize how amazing it is, how smart I actually am without a formal education. Pretty amazing to me even some days, you know. Uh, it's, it's also funny because my son is, and you know, my son's in college. He's at Berkeley School of Music. And um, it's been beautiful to kind of see what I could offer him, the things that I didn't get to experience as a child. And I'm not reliving my life you know, through my son in any way, but I, it's beautiful to allow him to experience that. And without getting into too much more detail about the abuse as a child and all the different abuses I experienced, I just think that I would have, I may have always been an alcoholic, but I don't know that I would have been, you know, drinking so early in my life had it not been for the the environment that I grew up in. I always say, kind of brought me to my knees a little sooner than other people. Um, My mother died when I was 22 and it was very hard for me. I felt like she was the only person in the world that could love me unconditionally. I didn't really understand the disease aspect of addiction, but you know, that not feeling good enough and uh, putting big walls up and all of that stuff and not feeling lovable um, was all a part of that isolation of the disease of addiction. So when she died, it was, uh, 
it just was kind of like the whole world was torn out from under me. And I'm one of nine children. My oldest sister was a heroin addict who died from AIDS. And at the time that my mother died, I was drinking and doing drugs. And what ended up happening, and I think this kind of brought me to my, um, what they call in 12-step recovery bottom sooner, is I stopped doing drugs because my mother hated drugs so much and I was just drinking. And then the drinking, you know, just got really, really heavy, really fast between the years um, that I was from 22 to 25. And when I was 25, I was like, had lied my way into a job, said I had training. Like I taught myself to type using the Mavis Staples. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but no, you know, I taught myself to type using Mavis Staples. It was this like book or program. I can't even remember. So I lied my way into this job, said I had a diploma, that I had secretarial experience. And I was kind of seemingly getting my life together. You know, every I was trying to fix everything from the outside in. And, you know, Kara read in the uh, bio that, you know, I talk about the inside out. And I understand now that like addiction was kind of the outside in kind of fixing thing. But anyway... By the time I was 20, you know, I I had stopped doing drugs. Actually, I didn't stop doing drugs. I was still smoking pot. I don't know why I didn't consider pot a drug, but I did not. I still wonder. I guess it's not really. It's legal in most states, but or many states. I'm I'm in the Northeast. So (laughs) everywhere you go, it's like the Wild West. It's so weird when I when I'm driving around, I can smell pot and I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going on? People can smoke on their porches. I know. It is weird. It's a little strange. Anyway, I digress again. So I was just drinking and and it took a lot. I was drinking a lot. I was, I was physically addicted to alcohol and I wasn't drinking in the morning, which kind of fed my denial about the fact that I had a problem, but I was drinking so late into the night that I was just kind of making it through the day until I could have a drink right when I got off of work between five and six o'clock at night. So, which I think was another kind of like one of those things that you dance around when you're want to lie to yourself about uh, problems. So I was 25 years old and I was living in this studio, uh, one bedroom apartment with my, with a dear friend of mine. And, you know, I pretty much went out every night. I drank every night, you know, secretary by day, punk rock chick by night. And I um, went out one night and met my girlfriend, picked me up and took me to the bar and I hadn't had enough. And we all usually go to Porchester, but I couldn't go get anybody to go to Porchester with me. And I drove to Porchester on my own after somebody dropped me off. And um, I killed a man on the side of the road uh, on my way to Porchester. I believe I was in a blackout. I don't know if I've just blocked it out because I can't really remember. But I did leave the scene of the accident. And it happened in Connecticut. And I got picked up in New York. And it was kind of this big, messy legal situation, as well as being one of the um, most, you know, one of the most horrible things I've ever experienced or done in my life. And, you know, it's a little hard for me to always move on from this part of my story because I never, it's still hard like to remember and go back, even though it's been over 28 years. And, uh, and that was on August 13th of uh, 1993. And um, I killed a 45 year old man who had two kids and a wife. And, you know, I was really ready to die. I got picked up in Porchester. Uh, they found me by my car. It wasn't, I wasn't like running. I just, I didn't know what had happened. And so I ended up uh, getting picked up and 
Uh, I was in Valhalla prison for the weekend and then I had to get extradited back to Connecticut. And one of um, a really beautiful thing happened. All my brothers and sisters were outside of the state barracks at the where I was extradited to. And um, I often think that's what kept me from killing myself at the time, because at that point, I thought that I should I just wanted to die. I mean, I was on suicide watch while I was in New York prison. And then, you know, I just was waiting for a place to go where I could just die. And having my whole family there and having not one of them, you know, look at me like I was a piece of crap really did something to my soul. It was kind of like the beginning. And it was this mustard seed kind of that was planted. And there was one other thing that happened too. They had to, um, there was a nurse and I still can't find this note. I don't know where it happened, but there was a nurse in the hospital when they were taking my blood alcohol level for the case. The night of the accident, they took me to jail and then back to the hospital. And she put a, a note in my pocket or in my hand or whatever it was on a little piece of paper. And it said, you are not alone. And I think she was somebody that might have been in a 12-step recovery. I am in 12-step recovery. That's how I maintain my sobriety. There are a lot of other things I do, but I, I like to be clear about that. Anyway, it's been, it was a long journey and I could tell the whole story, but I'm not going to tell it all. I did end up going to prison uh, for two years and I got out and I tried to begin my life. And what I found through the process of recovery um, was, you know, Everything was just all the things that had happened were just a symptom of a sickness that I had, a soul sickness for my whole life. And I don't blame my parents. I don't blame the people around me. But when, you know, you're raised in shit, you know, that's kind of, you know, what you put in is what you get out. (laughs) Let's just say that. (laughs) So (laughs) it's very simple for me. Spiritual life is very simple. Vicki, can can we back up just a second? Yes, please. So your siblings, your eight siblings are outside the state barracks in your lowest moment of your life. And these siblings grew up in the same house that you grew up in. Do you think they were there? Like maybe you've talked to them, maybe you didn't. But as you were telling your story, I was thinking they were probably there completely and totally identifying and knowing that it could have been one of them or it, 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 you know, I, I just want to hear if you've talked to them, if you've asked them what your thoughts are about that. Well, I won't get too much into the family dynamics, but we don't talk about it a lot. I'm the only one that really talks about things <laughs> in my family. I talk individually. I talk. So I have two siblings that are close to me in age, and we shared a lot of the same experiences. There's almost like three sets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I get that. I come from a really large family. Yeah, too. Yeah. So the three oldest siblings had a very different experience. The second set was really where all the turmoil was. The third set are from my father's second marriage. So I don't ever talk about like half, nothing has happened in my life. So, but they did not grow up in the house that I grew up in and neither did the older set of siblings, but the two are closest to me. I I mean, I'll be honest, and I don't know, I'll just say it, you know, we're the three of us are probably the most fucked up (laughs) because we experience, I think, most of the the dysfunction. You know, it was when my parents' marriage was ending. There was a lot of affairs. There were bad people coming into the house. There was poker games. There was a lot of drinking and drugs, you know, a lot of bad shit going on for us as kids that my older sister's kind of were 
you know, by the time we were coming up, they were mid to late teens and not living in the house uh, at that point. It's yeah, it's complex. You shared that your oldest sister died of a heroin addiction. Yeah, she she died of uh, AIDS. Yeah, AIDS AIDS from right from probably needles. Yeah, from she was a yeah IV drug user for many years, and she died in 1997 before all the drugs were you know like what we have now. She just didn't make it. You know, she she contracted AIDS very early on in the, the AIDS pandemic. So yeah, it's a very rich story. Yes, but but I don't know that it's although it's unique to you. I think other people are in similar situations. Thankfully, it's not the majority of families. I hope, but I think that again, like Kara read in the beginning of this podcast, your story is something that someone else can relate to. And hearing hearing you know how you have been in your uh, recovery is going to be encouraging. So thank you for sharing that about about being, you know, with your siblings that, and how that was so profound for you that you didn't, you know, it prevented you from really killing yourself to have that support and love around you. Although you don't talk about it, there was an understanding that only siblings have probably for each other. There was. And I think that the point, and, and I don't think I made the point, which is probably, I probably brushed over it. But I think the point being is at that point, all I needed was love. I think it's love that it needs to be the underlying thing for anybody that needs to heal. That's what we all need is love. And it's very difficult for people that survive trauma because we've built these walls to protect us, but then they also keep the the healthy love out as well. So the idea is it's very hard to trust people to, you know, to let them in to love you because your mechanisms, your trauma mechanisms, your survival goes into, it does what it's supposed to do. It protects you. And the uh, the unfortunate thing is it keeps everything out, not just the bad, but it keeps the good out too. So that was the first moment I think that there was a little chink in the wall, like that I could receive some love and have some hope to that I was going to be okay and that I was lovable. Oh, isn't that the, you know? I think most of us feel like we're not lovable. Yeah. When we survive, you know, when we serve, when we're survivors of trauma. Most of us feel we're not lovable. We don't understand why this happened to us. It's hard to separate the idea of sickness. You know, like I understand now all the things that happened to me were out of somebody else's sickness. I don't know that it was, you know, pure evil or malice. It doesn't mean it's not wrong. It doesn't mean I'm not angry about it. But once you understand it more as sickness, you understand that it had nothing to do with you. It's somebody else's sickness put upon you. And, you know, that's the cycles of trauma, though, you know, that, you know, they talk a lot about in, you know, psychology, but also in in spiritual healing, the idea of healing from trauma isn't necessarily you have to, you know, I love all this stuff, you know, you got to go through it, you know, all this. I don't buy into all of that. You don't have to relive everything, right? You do have to feel like, you, you do have to allow yourself to feel things, but you don't have to relive everything and you don't have to forgive everybody. But in order to be a healthy human being in the world and provide love to my family and nurture my son and my husband and my three crazy dogs, you know, I have to make sure that I'm coming from a place of love and that I'm full and and that I'm healthy. And the only way I can do that is to recognize like these cycles and then you break the chains of them. You recognize them, but they don't have their hooks in you anymore. It doesn't mean that you don't feel like I still get 
what I call like, you know, trauma tremors. I don't know. I think that's kind of what I call them. But the idea is that most survivors of trauma have physical manifestations of, you know, when their trauma is triggered, they have physical manifestations somewhere in their body or a smell or, you know, things like that. And, you know, you have to be able to know how to kind of move through those things and process them, but you don't necessarily have to relive everything. I don't know if I'm, Am I making sense with that? You know, like my experience as from trauma. Yes. The spiritual healing from trauma. You know, I did a lot of psycho, you know, I did a lot of therapy and psychological work, but I had to do a deeper energetic work. It sounds like you're saying that when you do get the trauma tremors or something triggers you, you realize what it is and you, at least that's what I'm, I'm hearing you say that you recognize what it is. So that you don't just react, or maybe you do react, but then you say, okay, that's, that's what this is. So this is how I'm going to, you know, handle it. I'm okay. This, you know, I don't have this trauma right now, but you know, this is what it is and you deal with it. And that's basically, and that's actually a very good way to express it because that, that is a lot of times what I have to do. I have to walk my way through it. The idea is that especially compounded trauma, like when it's, you know, a lot of people have one trauma or two that they experience, but I, I have a, what I call, and I don't know if this is psychological or not, but it's like a compounded trauma where there's a fair amount of abuse that I experienced over and over different through different people, different experiences. And, um, you know, I, you know, there's a, there's, I don't want to get too deep into it, but anyway, that compounded trauma is you know, there's a lot of layers to it, especially in the healing. So you're right when it does come up and I get what I call a trauma tremor, I do like, I do the things I need to do to take care of myself. And that's where the spiritual healing comes in, where the surviving to thriving comes in. Mm -hmm. The idea that I have to do a certain amount of things in a day in order to be normal, like everybody else. Like I can't just get up and go get out of bed and hit the road, Jack, and go take on the day, I have to get up and I have to take deep breaths and I need to meditate and I need to make sure that I, that I'm eating, that I'm doing all the things like I have, there's a recipe for Vicky to be like everyday Vicky. And when I'm not doing that, I'm usually, I can become very frayed, um, erratic. I become very defensive. The walls go back up because you know, my survival instinct kicks in again. I start to move back towards that because I need a fair amount of like spiritual cushion, if you will, (laughs) you know, to sit upon to kind of move throughout my day. And then I'll say this, like, that's not, I don't consider that a penance. Like, I think that's a gift, right? It's a gift that I know, like, it took me a lot of years to figure out like what the recipe is. And that changes. And that's the beautiful thing about spiritual life is you can, you know, in recovery is that it, it constantly evolves. It's like its own being within you, you know, like one of my favorite sayings is today's truths are tomorrow's lies. And if you're living a good life, that is true because you're willing to always change and recognize that this thing we call life is, is constantly moving. That's the nature of life, right? The nature of life is to keep going. So. I think that's what spiritual life offers us. I think that's great. You know, I think trauma takes on a whole new level or experience when it's 
like you said in the very beginning, being done by the people who are supposed to be protecting you and by the people who are supposed to love you and protect you the most. And as a kid, it's so confusing. You just don't understand why the people who are supposed to protect you and love you the most are hurting you. So you turn that around as a kid to it can't be your parents being wrong or bad. It has to be you. You have to be the problem. It can't be them. And you kind of make up that story as a kid. And that, I think sometimes that's what leads to addiction and sabotaging your own self because you just grow up believing that you're the problem. Right. It's your fault. It's not them. Well, you believe you're not good enough. Like, you know, like it's, it's the, the good enough kind of syndrome. And just to be clear, I wasn't, it wasn't my parents that, you know, they were neglectful, but they weren't abusive. They just kind of let a lot of bad things happen, which is, you know, I mean, that in and of itself has been kind of the process. You know, both of my parents have, my mother died, as you, as I said, when I was 22 and my father died a month after my son was born, almost 20 years ago. So what did they die of? Uh, actually, they both died of leukemia, different forms of leukemia, but they both died of leukemia, funny enough. Wow. So, and I've experienced a lot of loss, like. Uh, I've lost my parents and my two oldest sisters. So I wanted to comment on your the recipe for you <laughs> being, you know, the Vicky that you want to be. And I think I like the way you put that. And I think if more people were self-aware, whether they've had trauma or not to come up with the recipe, because we all have shifts and up, ups and downs. But getting back to you, Vicky, I've met the Vicky that has not had the right recipe on a particular day. <laughs> My point is that we still love you. And I think anybody can have an off day, but I think the point is to hold space for that person, even though they, and, and Vicky is excellent at doing this for others because she's done it for me so many times. And anytime, just to talk to your, you know, spirituality, anytime that I have had a conflict in my life and have spoken to you about it. Vicky's one of the people that can tell me the truth and it won't hurt as much. <laughs> and it, it, she can tell me the truth and I can hear it because of how gentle she is at, at telling the truth, at speaking the truth. Well, there's no judgment in the truth. That's it. Like if you speak a truth to somebody, you don't have to be judging them. And I think that's the difference. Like if I'm telling you what I think or what I feel. And when I'm working with people one-on-one, -on -one, you know, I always, I'm never afraid to tell them the truth. And I've never had anybody tell me, you know, oh, isn't it nice to hear the truth? Because I've never had anybody tell me that it's, that they, it didn't hurt, but they've always been very grateful that somebody would tell them, you know, the truth or guide them. And I just give perspective a different point of view, because it's really hard to see. It's just like for me, like I have spiritual advisors that I go to. I don't do this by myself because you can't see everything from the inside of you. You know, like your perspective can never be, you know, you can only know what you know based on your experience and your experience informs, right? Everything. So having somebody else's outside perspective that kind of can reform the information that you're take that you're taking in or the experiencing you're having in a way that you can digest it and in a way that it, it's not judgment like it's never when I share 
and work with people, I've never judged them. You know, I never look at a situation as one person's bad and one person's good, whether it's a relationship or family. I never like say, oh, you know, he's an asshole. You know, somebody's talking about their husband or boyfriend. I don't do that. I don't think it's productive. I don't think it's good. You know, like I'll say, you know, like, hey, this is like, maybe this is how he's feeling. Maybe this is what he's experiencing. And isn't it important to, you know, if if what we're doing in life is loving and understanding, what else is there? Right? Like everything else is cake. You know, everything else is easy. That's how I see it. It's just this. And and listen, I'm like, you know, I'm as rough and tumble as they come. I was a punk rock chick wearing combat boots and a leather jacket. And, you know, I I was a drug dealer. I was, you know, walking the streets. I was under bridges in the Bronx. This was not like I'm not, you know, I mean, you look at me and everybody's always like, oh, she seems so nice and sweet. But, you know, I, I come straight from the streets and uh <laughs> You know, I'm I'm still, you know, like you said, badass and punk rock, as you, you can hear, I swear, like I'm very real to who I am. I haven't become like a thing other than myself. I've just become, you know, I, I've just become the person that I was meant to be. A better version of yourself. No, I don't think it's better. You don't like that. Because then that's a judgment too. Oh, you're right. That means that I wasn't good enough to begin with, right? No, but... Right. But do you see how we do those kinds of things? And everything like in the human experience comes from a comparison to something else. I often tell people that are struggling, there is nobody, there will never be another you. There has never been a you and there will never be another you. And, and that's a good thing. That's a really, really good thing. And it's a beautiful thing to know, like that each of us hold something special and sacred. And, um, so I don't know. Do you guys have any questions for me? Because I feel like I've been going on and on. <laughs> I I have a question for you. Okay. What would you, knowing now what you know, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Because let's just frame this up. When this happened, you were 22, you said? How old were you? 25. 25. You're right. Your mom died when you were 22. You're 25. So what what advice would you give your 18 year old self if you could? It's going to be okay. Oh, yeah, it's going to be okay. There's not much else I think I could have told her at the time. You know, I mean, I could go on and say you're worth loving and all that stuff. But I think my 18 year old self just needed to know it was going to be okay, because it did not ever seem like it was going to be okay. My life was never okay. (laughs) And you know, it's, it's almost as simple as what that the note that nurse handed you, you're not alone. And that Oh, maybe that was you in the future giving yourself. (laughs) I don't know. Could have been anything. Giving yourself a note. I don't know either. But you, you know what? Getting back to that nurse, you referenced it like you kept the note. Do you? Did you keep the note? You just, you just can't find it. I can't find it. I never found it. But I know she gave it to me, and I know that's what it said. Wow, I love that. And that is so. That is so twelve step, though. That is. Right. That's, yep. I mean, in a 12 step program, you, you just want everyone to know that they're not alone and everybody wants you to know that you're not alone. Well, cause addiction is isolating, right? It's an ice, it's a disease of isolation. Right. Wow. So how do you go from, cause you stopped after you were in jail for two years, you came out and how do you get from that <laughs> to where you are today? And I don't, you know, I don't know how quickly you could <laughs> You could tell that, but yeah, 
Is there a simplified? I don't even back? know. You so, know uh, just one. No, one I can thing. let me answer. Oh, okay. Let me go answer. Go ahead. Let me answer it. So, you know, rather than saying the typical one day at a time kind of thing, I never gave up on myself. And I always kept one of the things I never would have considered myself a spiritual person. And one of the things that it was something I avoided, you know, when I first started 12 step recovery, but it was the thing that it was always kind of there, you know, like underneath. And it was something I always resisted. And I had a lot of healing to do. You know, I, I call relationships, the final frontier, um, you know, people always laugh. I share this a lot with people that struggle with relationships. But, you know, you said I've been married for 11 years. I had to do a lot of work to trust men, you know, so therapy, female friends, uh, group therapy, you know, and then radical self-care. And what does that look like on a daily basis? Well, some days it looks like putting my pajamas on and sitting in front of the TV and binge watching my favorite show. Some days it looks like 20 minutes of meditation, a workout and healthy meals. You know, so we often think of this idea of radical self-care, like, you know, I have to be fit and I have to eat healthy food and I have to be nice all the time. Like I always thought like I was eventually not going to be angry ever. Like that was, I thought that's what a spiritual person was. A spiritual person was somebody that did not get pissed off. I get pissed off a lot. I'm a hot-headed Italian Irish woman. I think the funny thing was like I kept trying to like I started this spiritual journey and I was trying so hard to not get angry. Like years I was trying not to be an angry person and it was so hard and it was so painful. I I mean so painful to try and deny that part of myself. It was like I was trying to cut off a limb and you know, I did an article years years ago for my girlfriend's website, and you know, she she wanted to know why I meditated, and I said I meditate to avoid being an asshole. You know, so <laughs> I mean, was that the title of the article? Was that the title? Meditate to avoid being an asshole. Like I love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because that was why I was doing all of this work because I didn't want to be. That's great. You know, <laughs> I mean. And, you know, it's tongue in cheek, but like anybody that's out there knows, you know, and I know people that are less, you know, less angry, you know, people have different tendencies, but my propensity is toward heat and fire. Once I accepted that about myself, I, it was easier to work with. And it was easier to understand that taking care of myself in the process of healing patience and realized it was going to take a long time. And I was in it for the long haul. It no longer became a chore or something I had to achieve. It became just a part of my daily life. And I was reading old journals probably from about 15 years ago, 14 to 15 years ago. And I still can't believe how like, you know, like looking back, I love to do that where you go back to old journals. And I was like, oh my God, the drama of my relationship at the time. I was like, you know, and the struggle I was having and all this stuff. And I was like, I wouldn't tolerate that shit for a minute today. (laughs) I mean, I, I just couldn't believe like the struggle and the feeling, but it was still a lot about taking care of myself and my self-esteem and self-worth. It took me a long time to kind of build the house of what my self uh, worth is the value of myself. And now I think I live and I, I don't know, you know, a three bedroom, you know, middle-class, home, you know, spiritual home or like self-value, you know, I'm not in a mansion yet, but 
I'm moving on up. I'm kind of like, you know, middle of the road right now. And it doesn't believe that I don't, I won't love myself enough to be like, you know, a castle. We're not there yet. And um, I think that's why we're alive. That, that's, uh, that is true about, about being alive. And you, you're talking about like parts of you. And I think so many of us, and we hear it on this podcast and we hear it from others and Kara and I experience it ourselves. We, we have a part about ourselves that we don't like. So we set out to try and change it. We think we're supposed to change it or supposed to not have that part be anymore. Like your anger part. You're supposed to all of a sudden like just stop being angry and never be angry again. When in reality, it's who we are. It's a part of us. And, and yes, it was formed to protect us and maybe it overdeveloped, but it still can serve us well. It still has a place in our life and we still need it. I just purchased a book or I was just given a book. I should say we no bad parts. Like we don't have any bad parts about us. They're just parts that we have to accept and love and and work with. Maybe that part kind of doesn't need to show up all the time or need to present itself all the time, but at times it does. So I love how you said that, that, you know, once you stopped thinking that it was going to be a quick fix or that you were just going to stop being angry and you knew that it was a journey that it became a little more easy for you. And I think that's such a great lesson that some of us never, ever learn. We're constantly just trying to change who we are when really we just need to accept who we are. Yeah, I I agree with that 100%. I, it, life got a lot easier when I, when I stopped trying to be somebody else. Do you mind sharing with us what it was like for you when you were in jail? Like, I can't imagine being 25 years old, being drunk, I mean, I can't imagine that. Let me let me rephrase that. <laughs> I can't imagine being 25 years old and I can't imagine being drunk. And unfortunately, and I'll admit this, I can imagine being 25 years old and drunk and behind the wheel mm. and waking up in the morning and saying, how the hell did my car get there? So I could have been in your shoes. What was that like to wake up or to be in jail with the reality of what had just happened to your life? What What was that? I think it was, you know, it's, I'm going to be very honest with you. I think for a while it, I felt more sorry for myself, right? Like, so, and I say this because I think it's important that it was true. I just felt so bad for like what had happened to me because I couldn't even grasp the gravity of what I had done. I mean, taking somebody's life is a really, it's a very big deal. It's, it's a huge responsibility and I think going to jail in some ways, I was really angry. I remember somebody said to me, if you, you know, if you go to jail, at least you can, it can be, that's, that can be your, like, you know, that's your penance. Like you'll have paid your due, you know, you'll have paid your debt to society. And for me, that just pissed me off at the time because I don't think you, you know, like I didn't do anything to society. I did something to this family and to this man. So Going to prison, there was actually a, a deep healing. It was scary. I was moved. My my prison experience was unique and I was moved around a lot. I ended up in a maximum security prison, which I should not have been in. And there was all this other stuff like the prison system. We could do another podcast on that. But what did happen for me is it did give me the time and space away from a, the situation to grasp what was actually happening and what had happened because it took me a long time to really grasp, you know, like the fact that I had killed somebody, you know, being in jail is, 
you know, it's demoralizing, you know, but I, I did the very best I could with what I had. I was lucky that I didn't go to jail right away. And I was about six months, six or seven months over when I went to um, jail. And uh, there is a beautiful part of my story. The woman who um, in 12 step recovery, you get a, a sponsor and the woman that sponsored me had had a similar experience to mine. And she's actually still my sponsor today. And she's an amazing and amazing woman. And that experience and that connection, she didn't end up in jail from her accident, but her having that experience was, it helped to normalize my experience a little bit, if that makes any sense. It, it's crazy to say, I, I always say that the accident was the best and the worst thing that happened to me. Prison is demoralizing. I don't think it's reformatory. I think it's dehumanizing. And I don't think it taught me a lesson. And I don't say that I'm not bitter about going to jail. Um, I don't have a problem with it. And I do think it shaped and changed my life and allowed me to help other people. But I don't, I don't really necessarily see the benefit of it, except that it did shield me from the outside world. And I think gave me a jumping off place. It gave me some time to heal. Um, I did. One of the good things that came out of my jail experience was I had met a great uh, therapist in prison who I worked with for a few months before I was moved. And he, that was kind of the beginning of my, uh, my introduction to, you know, talk therapy and working with psychologists and therapists and so on. So Vicki, you, I believe you are doing, you do some work at um, some of your yoga and Reiki at uh, drug and alcohol treatment facilities, correct? I used to, I don't now. I used to work at a hospital called Silver Hill, but right now I do uh, yoga for, I teach at an eating disorder clinic uh, two days a week. So I do work with people um, in recovery and I used to work at a hospital. I used to work at Bridgeport Mental Health doing, working with people who suffered, you know, were suffering from severe mental disorders, which I really love. That work is so, it was, it's challenging, but it was really beautiful. Have you done any work in the prison system? No, I have not. Okay. I have not. And that's a, it's a good point you bring up. There are no prisons close to where I live. And most of the prisons, you know, they, they don't pay you. Mm. I've done trainings to work in prisons and so on and so forth. But I've done trainings for yoga trauma and, and working in prisons and working with women with eating disorders. And I haven't gone back to work in the prison system because it's just, there's not a lot of, I mean, I was asked to volunteer and I can't, I don't have that kind of time or resources to do that. You know, I have right. a son in college and have to, you know, have my husband and my family. So I haven't been able to do that, but I do love working with people in recovery. And right now I'm working with the women's clinic for eating disorders. And it's a great addition to any like yoga and meditation are a great addition to all recovery yoga and meditation has been phenomenal. It's been the next level. I feel like people get, you know, sober, they recover, you know, they're recovering from addiction, but most people don't expand or enlarge their spiritual life. And that's one of the keys to long-term recovery from addiction. So by that sentiment, I'm wondering if, and we're not going to solve this here, but if, if the prison system or the states and federal government might invest some money in bringing in some alternate practitioners, there's still, you know, 
healing and recovery to be done on so many levels. But, but I understand, I understand your point, but I think that would be a great addition. Yeah. And there are small groups that do that, but it's not, you know, there's not enough of it. You know, there's the prison yoga project and liberation prison yoga, and it's a labor of love. Um, yeah. There's not a lot of funding and it's, I get it. You know, when you, when we're talking about the prison system and I, I do have a lot of strong opinions about this being somebody that's, that's been there and sees how it works is even now there's less, there are less programs for people that go into prison. Prison is housing. It's not, you know, it, you know, when you think about it, think about the penitentiary, like a penitentiary that's penal, you know, that's a penal system. Prison is not, you know, this is housing. It's not, we're not reforming people. We're not helping them. There aren't enough programs in prison to help people. And I took advantage of the things that I could while I was there, but it's not enough. And there's not enough for everybody. That's the other problem. You have to sign up for these things and, you know, you have to be the first one. You have to be approved. You have to be a certain level. And I'm sure it's different now. Like I've, it's been 25 years since I've been out of prison. So I'm sure it's different, but I have a lot of strong opinions about how prison is not I don't think it's helping society very much. It, we, we're, we're throwing people away, you know? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> don't be sorry. Yeah. I. It's sad to hear that because like you're saying, I think the premise is that will lock you up and you'll get your shit together through the resources we provide you and we'll set you loose and you'll be reformed. And I think we who who maybe haven't experienced what you have know that doesn't work. And you certainly who has experienced it firsthand know it's a broken system. And that's, it's super awful because that also changes people's lives forever, that experience. And mostly maybe not the way that you've come out of that. Maybe most people don't find the gifts that you were able to find in there. I also had a lot of support, which a lot of people in prison don't have, right. you know, I, I had a lot of support and I did, you know, I think there's a lot of grace in my story. There's these little moments that happened that, that I opened my eyes to. And I think, and I think, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of that for other people out there, but I don't think it's at the ready. It's not, you know, I've worked with women that have come out of prison before and, you know, I had to let, I let one woman live here in my house. She had nowhere to go. She had no family. I mean, she would have, she would not have been able to go anywhere. She would have been on the street wow. if I didn't give her a place to live. So, you know, what do you do with that? Like, you know, you're, you, you get paid 15 cents an hour or 20 cents an hour in prison. You can't save up enough money unless you're in for, you know, 50 years. And then I don't even know, you know, <laughs> that's a much longer topic, but that's also like this idea that, you know, people aren't garbage. I mean, I know that there are very, very sick people in the world and some people that just are too far gone. And I get that, but not the majority of people. And I've worked with hard cases and I've seen people come back from the darkest of places. And I tell you, it's always like, it's like the metaphor of, you know, gardening, you know, anything you give a little sunlight and water to just a little bit of love, it'll grow. It doesn't need much. It doesn't need much. Vicky, thanks. Thanks for like opening my eyes to to that situation. I'm a cop's daughter and he used to take us he used to take us kids to the little town jail and lock us up so we would experience what it would might be like to have to go to the bathroom in front of everybody. You know, there's no there's no dignity, there's nothing that is yours in, in prison. It was just a little town jail 
you know, so it wasn't uh, like what you've been through. And it was scary, but I think that, you know, never ever having to go through that just is an experience that I will never understand like you do, even though I spent moments in a little town jail. Um, I would never, ever know what that's like to have. It's got to be humbling. And like you said, it just strips you of all of yourself in a way. And it's not reforming. So thank you so much for like sharing that part of you and that part of your story. I'm really curious, like now in your life, where you are now in your life, what's the what's the one thing that you feel you're not doing enough of and you wished you were doing more of? all these years later and that huge experience later. I'm not doing enough of the, like, I'm not doing enough risk taking, you know, like I, there are things that I want to be doing right now that I'm not doing because I'm just not, I'm not willing to take the risk and put myself out there. Do you want to put yourself out there now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And commit to something. Yeah. Do you want to get a form of bravery, like a, a little form of bravery that you might want to just say, you know what, I'm going to do this and hold me accountable. I am not to put you on the spot or anything. But... No, no, it's fine. It's, it's good. Cause I've been struggling with this, you know, I'm a writer and I really would like to publish a book and that's something I have not done. And it's something I've turned away from, especially my experience over the last couple of years, getting a little more quiet about my experience um, because of how it affected family. So it's kind of been an emotional process for me, but I've been writing poetry for years. So I was thinking, you know, I think I want to, you know, I want to publish a book of poetry. I want to be more creative in my life, you know, and, and uh, I, I, you know, even if I never do it, it, it's okay because I don't really have any regrets. Like my life is beautiful and full. I have like beautiful friends and family and a husband and my son and, you know, I've been able to provide a life for my son that I never thought I could have, you know, like a stable, healthy environment. I've mirrored a good relationship. I've given him great experiences at our, at our wedding. He was our best man. My husband and I got married when my son was seven, eight, I guess. Yeah. Eight. And my niece who was 16 at the time was my maid of honor. <laughs> and my son was the best man and his speech to me, his speech and his toast to me was thanks mom for the adventures. You know, I, I'm so grateful. I've been able to show my son a life full of love and joy and adventure, like really how to live. And he is living in an apartment in Boston that I was able to move him into going to Berkeley school of music, doing what he loves, following his passion. Um, because he sees me do it. Like becoming a yoga teacher was like a passion of mine. It's something I really love. I don't know if it's my forever thing, but he sees me always doing the work and living like my life. So, and he sees me writing. I, I actually, I have been writing. I did um, a poetry slam over the summer and he came and watched me, you know, for the first time and listened to me, to my writing. I wrote a poem for him when he graduated high school and gave it to him. And, you know, he, I don't know if he always appreciates all my stuff, but you know, he, I know it'll mean something to him in the long run, but it's pretty fucking amazing that I like kind of this full circle. I've healed a lot of my, my trauma through nurturing somebody else without it. Vicky, you know what you did? You broke the cycle. I did. Oh, you broke the cycle. That's a hard thing to do. It really is. 
but it's it's a cycle that's worth breaking. Oh, it's so worth all the work, all the work. That is one brave woman who will take that on <laughs> to break that cycle. Amen. That's probably generational. Good for you. I wanted to make a comment about, you know, Vicky and I have been friends for, I don't remember how long, a lot of years. 18 years. <laughs> 18 years. Ryan was one. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh. Ryan was one. So I did not know Vicky before the accident or, you know, I knew her after. And I was always a very black and white type of person. And I had experience of experiences of my own that started to open my eyes to maybe not everything's so black and white. And maybe somebody's going through things that I don't know about because then I started to experience stuff that I never thought I would. But Vicky's story is one that I have not experienced firsthand, but it's one of, like you said, Patty, there, but for the grace of God, right? And it really opened my eyes to the other side of that story. When you read about or hear about in the news, a drunk driving accident, so-and-so was killed. There's an immediate reaction, I think, that, well, this person doesn't deserve, you know, anything. Basically, they took a life, et cetera, et cetera. And I, this is one of the stories that has really helped me look in any situation at what's going on on the other side of this, because it's not always so black and white, and it's not always assumed that we know exactly what's going on with with somebody else. And sometimes it's difficult, especially if someone's, you know, angry at you pointing their finger in your face or or being like just really difficult, but to try and put yourself in somebody else's shoes or say, okay, that person must be having a really shitty day because they're being really awful, awful to me. It's not always easy to do, but this was one of the stories that really has helped me just expand my thinking. And I'm incredibly grateful Vicky, for your friendship, because you have, you are a special, special person to me. And I'm so glad that we met. And we, and just as a funny little anecdote, we did not like each other when we first met. (laughs) (laughs) That's because you're both strong women. Oh, probably. And we met in group, in a women's group therapy, and we did not like each other. And here we are today. I love this woman with all my heart. That's so great. That's so great. And Kara, thank you for sharing that perspective, because I think it's so true what you're saying. You know, we'll jump to a conclusion without just for a second pausing and thinking. We have no idea what that person who just whatever cut us off, whatever they did is going through today and what's going on in their life. And we're just all about me, me, me. And really, we're all just people doing the best we can in the circumstances that we're in at the time. And we're all the same when it comes to that. I think, and just giving that consideration. Vicki, I'm so grateful to know you and to learn about you more and to hear your brave story that continues on in your life. It's not like it's ended and stopped. You're continuing on with yourself every day. And I so appreciate that. I want I want to wrap this up with a question for you, Vicki. What is it that you want to be remembered? For what legacy do you want to leave? You've done so many amazing things in your life. You've overcome so much. You've broken a, a, a terrible cycle that most people can't break because it's so hard to go through that. So many things that I could say would be your legacy, but what is it that you want to be remembered for? Love, just my love. I think it's the most, I think it's my greatest asset. It's what I can do most easily. 
And I think it's might be because of my experience that makes it really easy for me to love the hardest people to love, <laughs> you know? So, so would, would you think that most of us would think of that love that you just shared as unconditional love? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think love is this kind of thing, conditional, unconditional. I don't know. I, I don't put, I, I don't even like that. I think those are judgments too. Like, you know, we all have con- a little bit of conditions on love, like we're giving and receiving. I think love is reciprocal. And the beautiful thing about it is, you know, it's like anything, whatever, you know, I love that maybe this would be a good way to end. I don't know if you know the Native American parable about the grandfather who tells the his grandson about the wolves that are fighting inside of him. Yes, I love it. Do share for our listeners, please. So it's this parable about this grandfather who tell, who's teaching us, talking to his son about the two wolves that are constantly fighting inside of him. And one is love and one of it, one of them is fear. And he said they're constantly at battle. And the grandson asked the grandfather, you know, well, which one wins? And he said, it's the one I feed more. And I think that's really, I mean, I think that's it. You know, I don't think it's about condition or unconditional, you know, unconditional or conditional love. I think love in its purest form is just love. And I've come to know that more and more, you know, as I, as I've gotten older and I've been in relationships with people, I don't, my love is, is always unconditional. I don't give it with expect of anything in return, but I always get something back when I'm loving. So thank you. Thank you. The rebel in me. I can't, I can't be traditional about anything. <laughs> And that's what makes you you. (laughs) As Patty likes to say, perfectly imperfect you. Yes. (laughs) Exactly, Kara. Well, Vicki, thank you so much for sharing your story with us about, gosh, about, you know, growing up in an overwhelming nine, uh, nine children household with parents who loved you, but maybe didn't always protect you. And losing loved ones, two siblings and your both your parents at a young age and, you know, killing someone in a drunk driving accident, landing in prison and then finding yourself and working so hard on yourself to to get a recipe of how to take care of you and how to make sure that you are protected and you are safe and you are loved by you and okay because of it and breaking the cycle. I think your story is amazing. And I thank our listeners for listening. And I know that they got so much from this podcast and that your story has really changed so many lives in such a short time here with us, but in the past 25 years that you've been sharing with others. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for sharing. Thank you, Patty. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Vicki. We hope this podcast has inspired and empowered you to overcome what might be holding you back from living your best life. If you love this podcast, please share it with a woman you know who needs a little empowerment. Now go out in the world and be bold, be brave, be you. Perfectly imperfect you. With love, Kara and Patty. You're, nobody's getting the ball because now you guys are fighting. <laughs> <laughs>
And Vicki, you have to tell us the name of your dogs that have joined us throughout this podcast. Jersey, Dakota, and Joey. Two boys and a girl. And now they're super quiet. Mixed and edited by Desmond McNeese for We Mixed It, LLC. Go to whatsoundsawesome.com.